welcome to episode 221 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, yo. What's going on? Uh, you know, it, it is what it is. It's been a weird week. And uh, yeah, but can't complain. Life's good. Still breathing. So the Lord's been gracious. Lots of energy right off the top of this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know. It's It's been a strange week in our country and in our, our world. So it's, yeah, it, we'll, we'll talk about it, I'm sure. Are you about to hashtag that post mail? I might. No, 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 <laughs> no. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm in a weird mood. That's okay. This is going to be great. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. And I assume that some of that's going to come up in your affirmations and your denials, right? It's true. Not in my affirmation, but definitely in my denial. <laughs> well, let, let's go denial first then. Let's okay. just get to it. So the denial stems from um, the events at the Capitol on Wednesday of this past week. So it, it's not directly denying that, although we could deny that all day long. Uh, don't be uh, seditious idiots. Don't don't do stupid stuff like pose in the Speaker of the House's chair wearing like Viking horns or some stupid stuff. Um, it's just not it's just not good. But what I'm specifically denying is so in response to the riot that happened at the Capitol. For better or worse, um, my, my, my take on it is that at the very least, uh, President Trump was recklessly uh, inflammatory in his remarks. Um, he, he should have been more thoughtful about how he addressed the crowd. And although I don't think it's fair to directly blame him, um, you know, un- unless he is specifically saying, go do this, uh, I don't know that it's fair to necessarily hold him directly accountable for the actions of other people but he was foolish in what he had to say and uh he he definitely contributed to sort of the the era of violence that was going on and so as a result um and actually because there are some credible uh reasons to believe that there are more plans for more similar kinds of violent activities um for other political demonstrations twitter has permanently deleted his personal account they, they didn't suspend it. They didn't turn it off. They say they have deleted it and all information associated with it. So what I'm denying is now there's this response, this reaction that I'm seeing among Christians primarily, Christians that I respect, uh, Christian leaders of a per- particular flavor, but but Christian leaders that I respect kind of panicking that they're going to get removed from Twitter. So it, it you know, you see people are saying like, oh, I'm losing a thousand followers a day. And, and if you were to try to peel that back, and ask them what they think is causing it, they're acting as though, and some of them are saying explicitly that there's like this purge happening on Twitter where conservative voices are being stripped off of Twitter. And first of all, I don't see any good evidence that that's happening. I asked uh, through the Reformed Brotherhood account uh, the other day, does anyone actually know someone personally who's had their account deleted uh, in this so-called purge? Uh, crickets. Nobody has. Act- nobody knows anybody who it's actually ever happened to. Um you know, you see these people who are now saying like, well, if they silence the president, they'll silence us. They're acting as though this is the end of evangelization in the world. And the reality is like Twitter is a pretty new situation. It's a pretty new technology. Uh, the church got along just fine. And in some ways, I think actually got along a lot better uh, in terms of gospel proclamation than uh, we, you know, we have without Twitter. So I'm not worried about Twitter going away. I'm not, I actually don't think there's going to be some sort of mass conservative purge. I just don't see the evidence that that's coming. But mostly I'm denying the fact that it seems like Christians in a particular kind of leadership, and I don't want to call any specific group out, but Christians in a particular kind of leadership seem to be panicking and acting as though there's some massive purge coming. And whether there is or isn't, it's no source, it shouldn't be a source of panic for those who. Uh, who almost as a presupposition uphold the sovereignty of God. Um, right. So I, I'm just kind of denying this sort of weird uh, practical, I guess I'll just say it, like it's a kind of a practical atheism in reference to God's sovereignty and how this is going to go down. I don't think anybody would say it that way. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm seeing some pastors who are acting almost as though they can't fulfill their office if their Twitter account has been deleted. And so they're they're acting as though their religious liberty and their, their right to speak has been... Uh, tamped down or has been removed in reality. Like 
it's a little more complicated than this, but Twitter's a private company. They can they can do whatever they want with their servers. Um, and yeah, maybe that means that Christians won't be allowed on Twitter or on Amazon, or maybe maybe we won't be able to do podcasts because the podcast hosts are going to shut us down. Okay, like that's fine. I'll just go back to my church every Sunday and, and participate in the gospel and share the gospel with those around me. Like it's it's not going to shut down the gospel because certain quarters of the internet may or may not become available to Christians. Right. Uh, so I'm denying this sort of panic, this sort of practical atheism that it more or less ignores the fact that God is in control of all of this and that, that this too is for our good and is subservient to our, our salvation. Like we've said, um, I, I just was really discouraged by looking at the way that Christians are kind of responding to this. And if you go back to like, there's ninth commandment issues involved, there's people making statements about what Twitter is or isn't doing without any sort of evidence uh, to prove one way or another. Um, people, I don't know if this guy was a Christian actually, but I saw one guy who, who said, um, tw- wow, Twitter won't let you use the hashtag 1984 because they don't want you to uh, reference this Orwellian, you know, novel. And they're like, there's Orwellian. And then there's uh, disallowing access to Orwellian Orwellian statements. Well, you know what? Like, you just can't make hashtags that are all numbers. That's Twitter has always been that way. So instead of uh, instead of assuming that you're being persecuted somehow or that somehow Twitter is silencing you, maybe do like a half a second of research and figure out that no, they're not blocking the hashtag 1984. This is just the way that Twitter works. Um, and now instead of being thoughtful and actually making a point. Um, you've now made yourself look like an idiot and you've lost credibility, mostly with the people that you were trying to convince of something. So I, I, I guess I'm just discouraged with the, the the foolishness and the lack of wisdom that a lot of Christians are exercising through this. Like it, it's, yeah, it might stink. It might suck if we don't have access to some of these online resources and some of these platforms, but it, it's not the end of the church. It's certainly not the end of the gospel. Right. There's a lot that's good, I think, in that denial and not everybody's going to agree with us. And this is not a place that we're going to get into all the depth of all that stuff. We could probably do an episode on it. Actually, in many ways, like you said, we've already done a lot of episodes on this because we talked about the center of the issue, which has a lot to do with the commandments about understanding of God. It strikes me as well that the upholding of the sovereignty of God also means that we understand that the scriptures then tell us the truth about reality, about things that have passed and things that are and things that will yet to be. And part of that embedded in each of those things is this idea that there will be some measure of real persecution. Right. So if this is all we had to deal with, then we should be so fortunate, not just in our own time, but across the history of the world. And certainly in all the demographic places, all the countries where Christians exist, where the persecution leveled against them means a threatening of life, of safety, of their livelihood. And we're talking about just our ability to use social media. So, and to your point, these things are a little bit complicated. At the end of the day, in our own country, Twitter and Facebook and Google and AWS, these are all private organizations, regardless of whatever they, however they've been supported by the government. At the end of the day, our Constitution and Bill of Rights does not allow for everybody to express anything that they want over those things because they are not right. controlled right. In, in the, by the public domain. So that's just the reality. I think people got freaked out because they were like, wow, that's a major move. The, yeah. the leader of the quote-unquote free world now can no longer have a social media account because of the things that he's saying. So yeah. everybody else is like, well, if they'll do it to him, who can they not do it to? But that's been the case all along right. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm with you. It's amazing the backlash there because, again, it's part of the reason I've heard Christians, and this is this is good reasoning, say things like, well, when the scripture, when God's own word encourages us to hide that word, his law, his precepts in our heart, and not just the general ephemeral nature of the teaching of God, but the explicit and specific words that are given to us in the scripture by memorization, for instance, that is in some ways preparation for the fact that there may come a day where we cannot have those words in print in front of us. So if we're automatically willing to go there and recognize that, then this doesn't seem like a bridge too far to cross to say, yes, we could very well, our voices could be and perhaps will be shut down in the public domain. And actually beyond that, is that not already happening, at least yeah. in people's minds? So like, this is just an outworking of it being taken away in a very literal and physical sense, but really Christian perspectives, the worldview has now been set aside and pushed into a realm of just complete, uh, it's just ignored. It's treated as something that's not relevant anymore. So yeah. who is surprised? God is good. <laughs> and we ought to just move forward. Like, I, I like what you said because I think sometimes we just, we like the soft edge of sovereignty, which says, 
you know, when things happen to me that I find inconvenient, I can kind of cuddle up in this blanket that God is still taking care of me. What about all these other times where it's really difficult things that are happening to us? And we ought to say that God's sovereignty isn't just the warm blanket, but in many ways, it's also the hammer that puts us up against the, the anvil that does a great amount of work on us. And he is purposely ordaining these things to take place. So who are we complaining against at some point? We have to be yeah. so careful of that. Yeah, you know, it just came to me, actually. Um, in a lot of ways, we let's pretend that tomorrow every Christian voice uh, across the United States has been purged from every social media platform. Let's okay. just pretend that we wake up in in communist America tomorrow and, and we're not allowed to say anything online anymore. The fact of the matter is that as Reformed Christians, uh, it is not ultimately the state who would have taken that away from us, right? It's God who took that away from right. us. And, and we, uh, we of course, affirm the doctrine of concursus. You know, we, we affirm that God uses at times the wicked uh, intentions of wicked men to accomplish his purposes. But just as Job said, when the when the roving bands came and, and took his... Uh, his property and when the winds came and knocked down the house that his kids were in and when his very body was being ravaged, um, just as he said, the Lord takes or the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I- I'm sure that he was not saying that the, the men who stole his property and the the men who killed his servants, he was not saying that they bear no consequence. Right. He was not saying that. Uh, that those things should not be dealt with and that we should not seek using ordinary means to avert ourselves from disaster and avert ourselves from suffering. But what he was saying is that the ultimate agency behind all of these things is the Lord. And, and that's the whole purpose of the book of Job. That's why at the end of the book, Job does not get an answer from God. He gets the answer, I'm God. I, I do what I please and I do according to my will. That's That's the answer that Job gives him. And if you trust in me, that, then I will do what's right for you. That's the answer from the book of Job. And so I, I think what I'm seeing and what's frustrating, and, and some of it might just be that it's it's Twitter. Like you, you can't write theological dissertations on Twitter. But some of what I'm seeing from a lot of Reformed teachers is this panic that's acting as though like somehow the mission and purpose of God is being thwarted by what's going on. And, and yeah, it sucks. It's, it's painful. It's frustrating. Um, it's not pleasant. It's a little scary. But at the end of the day, if those things are taken from us, this just goes back to our our New Year's episode, right? If those things are taken from us, it will be for our good and it is subservient to our salvation. It won't be be primarily the state who takes those things away. It will be primarily God who takes those things away for his good purposes. So I I guess I I don't want to turn this into more of an episode than it seems like it already is becoming. I I, I was just frustrated and discouraged by the way that people were reacting to, to this very hypothetical and, in my opinion, somewhat unlikely immediate future that they they somehow see themselves waking up in tomorrow that that they're going to wake up and every account on Twitter has been purged that's ever said anything about Jesus that just doesn't seem to be what's going on there's no evidence that in and in some ways this just is like the boiling point of a lot of my frustrations that I've seen through the whole coronavirus pandemic, through the whole election, is there's this conspiratorial thinking that's going on in the Christian church that is, they're out to get us. They're going to get us. There's a conspiracy, right? The masks, that's a way to, to control us. The virus isn't real. It's not It's not really going to hurt us. It's just a shutdown. Like, there's this conspiratorial thinking, and now all of a sudden it's like, well, I, I lost 10 followers on Twitter and it must be that Twitter is shutting down Christians. And my my answer is like maybe people just don't want to listen to your conspiratorial you know conspiratorial crap anymore. Like right. may, maybe that's what it is. Maybe people are finally realizing that this conspiratorial thinking led to what is a tragedy in our democracy. Like any loss of life is terrible, right? Ultimately, there was not a huge loss of life in the events on Wednesday, right? Five people have died. One of them was one of the protesters. One of the officers who was responding was killed. Those are very sad things. I don't want to minimize those at all. But in the grand scheme of things, we're not talking about 9-11, right? We're not talking about, we're not talking about um, a, a mass loss of life. But what we are talking about is a disruption in our democracy and an, an instability that makes our nation very vulnerable, to be honest. And so so it's a sad thing for us to see. And a lot of it is a direct result of this conspiratorial 
there's no possible way that President Trump lost, right? There's no possible way I'm losing Twitter followers. It can't be because I'm a jerk and I don't and I I just spot off about things, right? I didn't lose the election because the other guy got more votes. I lost the election because someone stole it from me. And that kind of thinking really has no place in the Christian church because a lot right. of it is not rooted in reality. It's rooted in false understandings and pride that, well, the only reason that I didn't get what I want has to be that someone cheated me. It can't possibly be that I'm I failed or that I'm not good enough, right? That can't be it because of course I'm good enough, right? That kind of thinking has no place in the Christian church. So so this Twitter panic is really just a symptom of something that's been going on now for a year with with coronavirus. So I don't want to I don't want to belabor that point. It was just a really frustrating discussion thing to see on a, on a Christian leaders that I respect. Um, again, I'm not going to call anyone specifically out, but Christian leaders that I know and respect are, are behaving as though God is not sitting on the throne, that these things are not happening according to his, his perfect counsel and will. Um, and that, that's a, a sad thing to see. And I don't want anybody to misunderstand us or this conversation. We're not saying that we're not also prone to panic I mean, right. in our human nature when things like this happen. They're especially shocking to us. And mainly because we, again, I'll sp- at least only speak for myself, have lived a fairly cushy life. So these kind of issues with these perhaps consequences and repercussions are serious, at least by some level of magnitude. Right. And so they cause you to be shocked. The question is what we do after that sense of shock, whether we recenter on the scriptures and in God or whether we allow ourselves to a little bit kind of fall from that, move out to the perimeters where we express some sense of panic that really isn't commensurate with a worldview that we have yeah. promulgated maybe all our lives up to that point. And what I see is that a lot of people, especially non-Christians, but some Christians as well, you've seen all this language in describing those events as if the institutions of our government are in their own way some type of religion or higher power. Yeah. So this idea of things being sacrosanct or, uh, you know, like the idea that somehow the invasion of that building, because that was like hollowed ground, you've heard all these things and speaking about democracy, the only thing that's hollowed and ought to be revered is God himself. So this also just betrays that we can try to find our centeredness and our shalom that especially that that idea of shalom, that wholeness being present in the midst of great tribulation or trial or shocking events, we can try to find it in everything other than God. But even the things that we feel like we built that are seem to be transcendent, we will discover that they only collapse underneath their own weight. Right. And everything will do that except for God himself. So yeah. there's just so many lessons here. This is why I said in that episode that we did on around the turn of the year that I think that has been a hard year for Christians in particular, because we are all the metal of our faith and our commitment to what we say, believe is being tested in a way the unbeliever doesn't have to deal with. Right. Because we have to decide how we're going to act in these times. And in that decision, it comes with a great amount of processing, but then a fortitude, which I think we'll get into today that requires the kind of grace and divine energy that only comes from relationship with God. Yeah. 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 Well, enough about that. What what are you denying today? I'm going to keep it, try to keep it brief. And I'm slightly tagging on to what you said. It's again, we never coordinate these things, but I find it just amazing how this is maybe like an offshoot of what you were talking about. I'm denying against the way some Christians continue to kind of emphasize that things are not normal and therefore trying to reconcile that normalness with the fact that God still works. So yeah. slightly different than what you said, but here's where I see it is almost now a lot of congregations, a lot of groups, whether that's the Lord's Day gatherings or prayer meetings or Bible studies or youth groups, of course, they're doing things by, via distance. A lot of that's happening online and you're seeing people yeah. through a screen and not in person. And it just struck me recently how tired and weary I've grown of the first several moments of every engagement being an explanation of how this is subpar. This is not what we'd really like. And it usually goes something like this for the most part. We'd prefer to be in person. We know there's a really strange times like we're thanks that you're being patient with us, but God is still going to do great things. God can still work. Even as we gather in separation, there's still a unity. God can still do things in that. And I've just grown to realize How human is it and so strange that we start with our circumstances of inconvenience? And this is not to say you and I have been very outspoken about the primacy of public worship over private worship. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there's this sense that we as humans were dictating our circumstances are suboptimal. So we've got to reconcile that even in the midst of these things where we can't be together, that God can still do something. We got to like assure each other 
that guy's still on the move, that he's going to do some work. It just strikes me so odd, whereas we don't start the other way around, as if, again, God is sovereign over all things. Right. He's willing for this, actively willing for this to take place right now. And so because of that, why do we need to say anything anymore? It should yeah. just be like, God's in control, and this is what he desires for us right now, so we're going to be faithful. And I'm not talking about, again, like supplanting or purposefully trying to put in place an analog to the gathering of the Lord's people on the Lord's day when you can do that. Right. We're talking about people that are gathering together via distance because that is what is safe and it'll be to the sixth commandment. And yet we still kind of have to say, like turn around and say, well, don't worry. God will still do something great this morning. Yeah. In this circumstance. It's strange, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think early on in this mess, whatever we want to call it. I think that was understandable. And in some ways it was good because, you know, pastors needed to teach their people. I think it was incumbent on pastors to teach their people that this is suboptimal, right? Because, because there was this, uh, at least initially there was sort of this push that like, yeah, well, this is no different. You know, it's the same where it's the same as a church service. We're just, we're just behind screens instead. And it's not. And so there was a good reason initially to make some of those qualifications and use those moments as teaching moments to say, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. But we've been doing this for like eight months now. (laughs) So like we, you know, if you've had to say every single week, this is not the way it's supposed to be, then you probably are under emphasizing it or or underestimating your congregation. Um, But yeah, I think in a lot of ways um, we do it. It's the same kind of theme. Like we, we, we underemphasize God's sovereignty and and paradoxically sometimes the way that we do that is by verbally emphasizing it. It's like right. we you're exactly right. Like we have to reassure ourselves of something that is true and in in some ways that actually reveals I think a, an understanding that maybe you're not on actually all that sure that it's true. If you have to keep telling yourself that it's true, then maybe you don't really believe it and you're just trying to convince yourself. Right. So I I think you're probably right. Yeah, I don't want to again anybody to think like we're on like shaky ground here, thin ice theologically. I am being super nuanced here. And I'm talking about like kind of a particular, the, those devoted Christians yeah. who are well-intentioned here and kind of can just get caught in this rut of always trying to kind of have to explain and emphasize this thing. Yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is you, we are the ones that shouldn't have to always keep saying that we should just come to an agreement and understand that the true sovereignty of God means that we don't always have to try to make excuses for why God yeah. will continue to work or emphasize it. And that's, this is different than, you know, like Luther saying, you know, preach the gospel to yourself as a reminder. It's good to rehearse certain truths, but I'm with right. you. Sometimes I feel like we're trying to like, make sure like you, it's, you're okay with this. Right. And I'm okay yeah. with this. Right. And God, you're okay with this. Right. It's, it's just that we need to trust that God, you know, it's possible, and I think about this especially with like other gatherings. I got to be part of a prayer meeting this past week that uh, that was done online. It was an incredible time of prayer. Uh, that, I mean, full stop. No other explanation is necessary. Yeah. And I left there thinking, uh, that was great on any standard. I, I don't care like if, if uh, I measured up against times I've been with people in person or one-on-one or large group settings or prayer. It was just a beautiful time of prayer. And I guess what I was ashamed about in my own life is I should not walk away thinking, well, I'm really surprised at how good that was. Yeah. Because God is full of majesty and authority in every circumstance and in every environment. He's the one who set the rules out for us for how to gather and to worship because it best suits his glory and our good. And in his superintending, will, he's still doing that very thing right now. Yeah. So it's, I've been maybe more frustrated with myself. So it sounds like our denials are kind of more in that we're right in the same realm there is yeah. like, we got to lean in brothers and sisters, this sovereignty of God thing. If it is something that we really want to set our lives on, then we need to set our lives into it. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. So let's hit it with a couple lightning round affirmations. So why don't you hit me with yours real quick? Quick affirmation is a book this week. It's not like light per se, but uh, I'm affirming the book, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History by John M. Barry. And here's why, maybe for an unexpected reason. This is kind of a tome and there are parts, I'll be honest, that were kind of boring for me because this author goes through not just the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, but also a little bit of like the medical history in America to try to help you understand why that thing took place. I read it because apparently everybody was reading this book. And I actually found myself very much enjoying it. And two things. One, I learned a lot about the flu 
including where the H and the N come from in the flu name, which was super enlightening to me. And two, I actually was more encouraged and less scared at the conclusion of this book than I yeah. thought I'd be. And that was partly because it really just helped me understand viruses a lot better. And honestly, I was just drawn back to the psalmist saying we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And I think part of being fearfully made is the fact that in this world in which sin exists and the creation is not as it ought to be, and it's still groaning, that one little microscopic biological piece of RNA could befall me and cause such tremendous disaster. It caused me actually to worship God all the more as I read this book. So I'm recommending it in that vein. I think that hopefully you'll find that this writing here actually helps you understand a little bit more what's going on in the world. And I think we'll relieve some of the just general fear around viruses and how yeah. they work and what's going on, because you'll find that there's a lot in this that tells the story of what's going on now. And so you'll maybe you'll start to say, as I did, Oh, so we've been here before. Like this yeah. kind of thing does happen. This thing happens regularly and God is yet still in control. So the great influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history is a well worth the read for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. You know, I, it's funny. I'm uh, I, I'm scheduled to get my first round of coronavirus vaccine on Friday, and I got to admit, I'm a little nervous. But one of the things that uh, has helped me is reading articles about how this vaccine works. So it, it's amazing to me. You know, you just just public service announcement since we are a top fifty healthcare firm podcast. Of course, you cannot get coronavirus from the coronavirus vaccine from either of the ones that are available in the U S because it contains no coronavirus. This vaccine works in a totally different way. What it does is it, what it does is it teaches your body. It causes your body to make the little spikes that are on the outside of the coronavirus. And then your body's natural immune system learns how to defend against those little spikes. And so you're not getting any coronavirus. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, I think more knowledge generally is better. And, and I, I totally affirm your, your book recommendation. And when I say awesome to that, what I mean is in the literal sense of the word. Yeah. Oh yeah. What an amazing world we live in. What amazing God has equipped his creation, his people to be able to conceptualize and understand enough of what's happening yeah. in the world at that kind of level to create, this is really unprecedented stuff. So this is, I think, a wonderful book in that yeah. same vein. So how about you? Give yeah. Me your so affirmation. I'll go real quick. I'm affirming a, a newish podcast. It's not brand new, but it's newish uh, called The Restless Podcast. Uh, this was recommended to me by Luke, who is the host of Steady Anchor podcast. He recently recorded an episode with them. I don't think it's come out yet. But this is basically a podcast by two guys who came into the reformed world through their Young Restless Reform podcast or um, sort of movement and are now in a more fully orbed confessional uh, perspective. And they're calling it a postmodern or a postmortem on the Young Restless Reformed movement. And it really is kind of just a good podcast that sort of talks about the issues. They spent a fair amount of time in the early, you know, the early episodes defining the movement, explaining kind of how it came came to be. They interviewed Les, uh, you know, who made Calvinist and was the founder of the Reform Pub, um, which probably the Reform Pub and Reform Pubcast had much more of an influence in the young reform restless world than, than most people probably give it credit for. So it, it's just a good podcast. It, it's just really good as someone who sort of came through that movement. I've tough talked about how I didn't really come in through the normal young reform restless venues. And, and you know, I didn't list, start listening to Mark Driscoll until after I already had read the Westminster confession of faith. Um, it was a good podcast to sort of look at that movement. And I think as they go forward to sort of learn from what happened during that movement and some of the issues that were present and, and still are present among a lot of people who are still sort of in that group. Um, so yeah, check it out. It's called Restless. Uh, you can find it on podcast catchers, Apple Podcasts, you know, pretty much everywhere. So before we transition into this first of the new episodes this year, in the book club, which I'm super excited. Book club is back Bookcast. and it's better than ever. One thing I wanted to address just briefly is we, I always appreciate when I kind of revisit and go back into our Facebook group, see some of the commentary that's happening there. And I want to at least acknowledge something because I was not called out in some kind of uh, nefarious way, but my attention was supposed to be drawn to a particular post. I'm, I can't remember what it was, but I must've made a joke in the last episode. I should go back and listen something about Bitcoin or I mentioned Bitcoin. And uh, somebody had actually posted and started a whole chain of conversation about 
Bitcoin and whether or not we do an episode on Bitcoin. So I just want to say, one, I saw the post. So I appreciate all the brothers and sisters out there who dropped my name into that. Uh, some of it was, do we have things to say about that? I mean, I know that I do. I presume that you do. But I always find that with things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, there's a lot of volatile opinions out there. And sometimes the discussion isn't always helpful in the online venue. I thought the people in that group were wonderfully generous and courteous and civic in their conversation. A lot of them had differing opinions, but it was a really loving conversation. So all I want to say is, I don't know if you and I will ever do an episode on that. Like I have things I would, I could say, and I have maybe perhaps recommendations for this as an asset class, but also I've worked in finance my entire career. And in this venue, in the podcast world, I always want to be super careful that anything I say or anything you say is not construed as some kind of advice or guidance yeah. toward investing in particular. We've talked a lot about stewardship, and I think we have a lot to say there, and this is the proper venue to do that. But I'm always a little bit nervous and hesitant. I'm very reticent to give some kind of particular in nuanced instruction in finance for fear that it would not be suitable to everybody that's listening. In my career, my own aspirations, the own convictions I stand by, either professionally or spiritually, really prevent me from doing that. So I don't know how we'll thread that needle. But I wanted to acknowledge yeah. that. I saw those posts. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this topic. It's not distinctly Christian, I would say. In, in many ways, I think it's actually agnostic toward a Christian worldview. But that doesn't mean that there's a Christian perspective that we can bring to bear in this discussion that is appropriate and insightful and helpful. So that was like a weird maybe disclaimer for nobody who saw that. But isn't the first time somebody said, "What do you, how do you guys feel about Bitcoin? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so if I'm 100% wrong on this, please just correct me on the air. I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> Bitcoin is one of those things that um, seems really new and innovative. And in a certain sense, it absolutely is like this entirely electronic currency is a uh, is a strange new thing in the world. But on another level, it's really just another form of money. Right. So it works different in, in some ways and you invest in it differently is my understanding but all of the principles that we use when we're thinking about money and investments and stewardship are probably not all that different in the long run and in the grand scheme of things when we're talking about Bitcoin. Um, I do also want to say I was a little disappointed because when you said something about the chain in the thread, I was really hoping for a blockchain joke and I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't get it. It didn't come in there. That was good. And I know you explained to me what blockchain was. That's real um, good. Uh, which I still don't understand what blockchain. I, I can, I can un explain the doctrine of the Trinity and I can parse Greek verbs, but I can't. I still can't quite get my head around what blockchain is. You're, some some you're sort of alone. shared ledger thing. It's like a Zanga yeah, post. Go. I don't know. Zanga post. Wow, that's a deep cut right there. I know there. it is. It, it is. It's funny. People are talking with all the Twitter stuff. People are joking about trying to re revisit uh, Zanga in MySpace. That's real deep cut. So. Tom is my best friend. I just want to say, Tom, Tom and I, I go way that. back. We got to get him on the cast. We do. So all that to say, maybe at some point we'll have some kind of mini episode, or maybe if somebody has a specific question, they could uh, write in. I know the questions there were, do you have recommendations for resources? And I do. I'll just be honest with everybody. I don't know. This is the right venue for those yeah. recommendations. Not because like they're particularly complicated or nuanced or, or difficult to understand, but more just, it's not exactly what we set out to do here. And I'm not sure it might be more of a red herring, but yeah. I would say, brothers and sisters, you can go to um, the website, shoot me an email. You can reach out to me, jesse at reformbrotherhood.com, and I'd be happy to chat more about that kind of thing. Yeah. But right now, we want to talk about book club. Yes. So if you haven't heard our episodes where you've announced what we're doing, we are working our way through a book called Reset, which is written by David Murray. This week, we're going to, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about other stuff. And that's, that's, uh, I wish I could say it was on purpose. It's probably not, but it's okay because the introductory chapter is not very long. It's pretty straightforward. So, so we don't need as much time to unpack it, but we're going to go through, we're, we're planning on doing roughly three up, uh, three chapters per month with an, an extra week or two in some months to sort of talk about other stuff. We don't want to get tied down to just doing book club every, every week for the next 11 weeks. But this week we're talking about the introduction. And, you know, I think I mentioned it a little bit before, but this this book cast is so timely because whether we recognize it or not, this last year has been so stressful 
on all of us in a whole variety of ways, right? We've, we've had to learn how to deal with a pandemic. None of us have ever, I mean, none of us have ever dealt with a real full blown pandemic before. Um, we've had to learn what it means to, uh, to order our groceries all the time and never leave our house. Like there are people that are doing that out there. And there is this baseline level of stress and anxiety that is happening in our culture that I don't think any of us have ever experienced in our lives. Um, that's not to say that individuals have not had had seasons of intense stress and anxiety, uh, but as a society as a whole, as a church as a whole, we have had this baseline level of stress and anxiety that is unprecedented in in most of our lives. I, w- I would say actually probably all of our lives, the people who are listening to the show. I don't think we have any like octogenarians that are listening to the show. Maybe we do. If we do, we love you, 80 plus crowd, but I don't think you're out there. So Represent. So, so this book was written by David Murray, primarily um, written to men, which we'll talk about that. But it was written kind of as a result of his own crisis of burnout that he had. He recognized, and he gets, he'll gets he get into it more as you go into the book, but he, he recognized that he went through a season of intense burnout. And then he started to recognize as a pastor and as a seminary professor, he was seeing, particularly in the lives of men, he was seeing these signs of burnout and he was seeing people come to him asking for advice about burnout and about stress management. And so he thought, just like most good pastors are, I'm going to study this, I'm going to preach on it, and I'm going to write about it. And that's the book that we have is kind of his his experience predominantly as a pastor and seminary professor looking at what it is to deal with stress, what it is to deal with burnout and how do we, how do we deal with it? How do we prevent it? How do we recover from it? All of those things are wrapped up in this book. Yeah. So let's get after it a little bit. I will, I will say, I'm not ashamed to admit this. I was surprised at how rich the introduction was Yeah, right off the top. There's so much stuff in here. I hope that people will pick this up because compared to some of the other stuff you and I've read together and talked about, this is like a little bit more right into your life right away. Intensely yeah. practical, intensely personal, intensely pastoral. So if if maybe your complaint for some of our reading in the past has been, it's a little bit too heady, I think you're going to find this to be right in that sweet spot of giving you something to really ponder and to apply as soon as you read it. And so for me, what I found really interesting, now this resonates particularly for me because I didn't see this opening this uh, metaphor coming, but he talks about first the reason why he's kind of writing this book and how burnout is best applied by way of example in his life to somebody running yeah, and running too fast and therefore not being able to finish a race. Well, this really does hit home for me because two years ago I ran a um, half marathon with a good friend of mine. So 13.1 miles. And I'm not like a professional runner. Like I, I try to go out and keep my legs moving faster than a walk for as long as I'm able to do. And so we had trained for this race. I actually run several half marathons before this, humble brag. And so we were, <laughs> we had trained for this race, but because we, we had done it before, we only ran 10 in our training. And usually that's the way these things work because it, it, as you add uh, more miles, it's incrementally a lower percentage of the total miles you've trained on. So that, that's totally normal. So you might right. only, you rarely do for a long race to actually go all the way. It's probably a better idea, but rarely do to go all the way. So anyway, all I just say, we're running this race. It's in September. It's beautiful out. Uh, both of our wives, our families are there to support us and cheer us on. And we get to mile 10, actually just, just under mile 10. And yes, just like uh, this book talks about, we may have started a little bit too fast, but we're doing okay. We feel all right. We get to just <laughs> before mile 10 and my wife is there at this point and she's cheering us on as she sees us coming. And she says, you're doing so good. Only four more miles. Something in my spirit broke because <laughs> I was tired. <laughs> we had probably run too fast. And here's, here's what happened. Something literally broke within me then. And, and everything from that point on started to go downhill. And then in mile um, 13, so literally we're in the last mile. I think I, we had only like maybe, I want to say less than a half mile to go, like maybe four tenths. I had to stop. I literally had to stop. I was so in so much pain. I was so exhausted that I stopped. And here's the thing. When I read this chapter, I've run all these other races, and this is the only half marathon that I remember that sticks out to me because I failed to finish it with strength. Yeah. yeah. And so there's something to be said for this whole thing because 
He's going to talk about the importance of what he calls like a grace-paced life. That's, I think, the thesis he has. Let me me just quote him real quick. I've learned that God has graciously provided a number of ways for us to reset our broken and burned out lives and to help us live grace-paced lives in a burnout culture. So I think for Christians, this idea off the top of being paced in your Christian life seems like a cop-out because what sometimes it's interpreted, pacing sometimes is interpreted as you're holding back. You're not giving everything that you should. And I know from my own experience that a good runner, when they run the race, they don't have anything left at the end, yeah. but they want to have enough to, in, to engage every vicissitude of the track or the course that comes upon them so they can run it with joy and with strength. Yeah. So I think right off the top, that's what he's giving us to consider. Yeah. Another analogy that he doesn't use, but I think it's helpful because I think you sell yourself a little bit short as a runner. You, you say you're not a professional runner, but over Christmas you went out for a run and you just accidentally did like twice as long as you, <laughs> you intended to do because you got though. distracted by some turkeys. So I think you probably are, you know, I don't think everybody can relate to this this runner metaphor. I mean, it's easy enough to understand, but I don't think most people can relate to it. But something that I think most people can relate to is thinking that it's Friday and realizing it's Thursday, right? You you go to work, you, you know, you, you are, you're, you're plugging through the day, you're all excited for the weekend. And then all of a sudden you realize it's actually Thursday and you have another day to go. And to me, that exemplifies kind of what he's talking about. And I actually, I had that experience like two weeks ago. Well, not two weeks because I think that was the week I was off because of midwinter, no reason. But I had that experience recently where, you know, you, you work a job. I work a job where I'm on the phone all the time. I'm constantly making up on calls and I actually do have to pace myself. If I go too fast in the morning, I find myself slowing down and getting easily distracted in the afternoon. And I want to, I want to honor my employer. I don't want to waste time. I want to be a productive employee, but part of that is properly pacing myself. And I have to be honest, Thursday morning of that week, I was cruising. I was, I was just bang, bang, bang. Everything I was doing was right on, I was firing on all cylinders. And then I realized that it was Thursday instead of Friday. And honestly, Thursday afternoon and Friday was almost a waste because I was, I was spent. I had gassed myself out the first four and a half days of the week because I thought I was spreading that out over five days. And and that's kind of what he's getting at is that the Christian life in general has to be properly paced. If you try to devote every bit of energy you have until you're spent, you're going to end up missing things that the Christian life requires because you're not going to have the energy or the wherewithal to do it. Likewise, if you you are not being productive, if you're not being active enough, you're not going to be fulfilling all of the requirements and the responsibilities that are there as a Christian. If you, you know, we've talked about this, we did an episode very early on about kind of preparing for the Lord's day. And we talked about how you need to go to bed early enough on Saturday that you don't wake up exhausted on Sunday because you you need to be firing an all cylinder Sunday morning. And if you don't go to sleep till two in the morning on Saturday night, then you're going to wake up and you're going to be tired. You're probably going to fall asleep during the service. And so I really appreciate this introduction and his humility to kind of explain this situation, which he'll going to get he's going to get into more of the, the more immediate circumstance with his own health concerns and some other things that went on. Right to explain this in a more intense way. But this this is kind of, I think, is the thesis uh, statement of the whole book. He says, and this is right, right away, it's on page 10 in the Kindle edition. He says, finding that perfect pace, the sweet spot between too slow and too fast is vital for success and longevity as an athlete and as a Christian. And I think when I look at my own life, Right. I have this task list of books. I actually I've joked with you off the air about all of the books that I want to read next year. Right. I want to get through Bovig's Dogmatics. I want to get through uh, Van Maastricht, the two the two volumes that are out. I want to read Beaky. I want to read the Institutes again. I had like seven full length dogmatics that I was I was deluding myself into thinking that I was going to get through in, in 2021. I have not read a single page of Bovings Dogmatics yet, and there were 10 days in. And I this morning, actually, before church, I actually was praying about my schedule and just about, I, I just, I felt like I was, I wasn't actually spending the time in study that I thought I needed. I went in and I deleted all of those out of my list because I need to just, I need to just slow down a little bit, read what I need to read. I need to focus on the scriptures. So, so I think this is something that all of us in different ways can relate to. 
And I'm really looking forward to working through this book because as I said, like the stress and the anxiety is so off the chart for all of us right now. And it's it's just a background stress and anxiety. There's nothing we can do to change the pandemic right now. I mean, we can each take our own little steps and we should all do that, right? Wear your masks. Don't go out when you don't need to, right? Wash your hands. All of that stuff's important. But me doing that is not going to drastically change the course right. of the pandemic, right? But that still weighs on me. There's still an anxiety and a stress level that I have to deal with. And so I'm hopeful. And I I think that this book is going to give us some real good practical kind of puritanical in the best sense of the word wisdom to utilize, to help us navigate some of these kinds of challenges. I think we're uniquely the right audience for this. Hopefully the people that are tracking with us, listening along in our conversations, because we probably tend to be on average, the keeners. And what I mean by that is people that, are want to do a lot for God, just yes. generally. I mean, let's just call it what it is. People that are busy with doing, want to do stuff for God. And so if you're like me, you might be thinking, well, those fall into lots of different little spheres of which one of them might be family. So maybe you're thinking as a, as a father or a mother, like, well, we're, we want to do family devotions. I want to be connected to my church. I want to give regularly into the service of the church. I want to be a part of lots of the events of the church, even if they're distanced right now. And so after a while, all these things do or can start to overwhelm in such a way that they become burdensome. And you think, well, how can I do all these things? It, it feels like God is calling me to be the kind of Christian that's actively involved in as many things as I possibly can be. But how is it that I feel so depleted at the end of all those things? And how, what happens when some of those things start to become a thing that I don't look forward to, that they're not a, f- a form or source of rejoicing? What can I do with that? And I think he's, he's going to address a lot of that stuff. I'm surprised that the way that he sets that up was this idea of pacing. Because again, yeah. pacing says that you want to get into a rhythm where you're not doing too much, you're not doing too little. Again, to go back to running, I mean, everybody knows that when you try to run, there's no part of that where it's coasting. It's not like bike riding. You can't just stop your feet and continue the action. So it's he's not saying don't do work. He's saying you want to get into that spot where right. you feel like you could do it forever. And it's not that you're on your own strength getting to a place, but it's where that in your communion with God, that you are receiving the right amount of divine energy for the task he's given you. And this means saying yes to things. It means, it means saying no to things. Right. The other thing that it, it kind of, I would say in my own mind, it draws me to is in this will, I'm going to try to kind of come and meet halfway the Bitcoin people. So I'll give you a financial concept that I think makes sense to me in light of what he's talking about here. There is this principle called the, the Kelly criterion. And in probability theory or like, oh man, ready? We're going to get fancy. An intertemporal <laughs> portfolio choice. So when you're, let's say, if you're playing a game of chance, no matter how you feel about that, just work with my, with my example here. If you're playing a game of chance or you're investing your money, let's say in some kind of assets, the Kelly criterion is a formula for bet sizing that leads almost surely to a higher wealth compared to any other strategy in the long run. So here's what that means. If you were like a professional poker player, for instance, a lot of people think, well, the best way to win and to play poker is to figure out how to be the best at the game and to read people and to make the right probabilistic statements. The actual best way to play is to know how much of what you own at the table to put in as a bet because the goal is to outlast everybody. Right. And so you need to make sure that what you're committing to the game is appropriate relative to the probability that's a hand here. So the Kelly bet size is found by maximizing the expected value of the logarithm of that wealth, which is equivalent to maximizing the expected geometric growth rate. But I realized I got super nerdy halfway through. So, but that's my point here is he's almost saying the same thing. He's that these Christians who give too much thinking that this is what God demands of them, requires of them, and then end up burning out. That's the exact opposite, at least in his contention here, of what God wants for us, which is to say he wants us to be in the game, so to speak, for the entirety of our lives with strength. And so that is something that I think is very different. I'm hoping that people will be encouraged by that idea. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I I think, too, there's a number of really important points that are made during this chapter. A lot of times introductions to books end up just being like a summary of what the book is about, like like literally just like an outline of the book. And those are valuable when you're reading a book and you want to understand, like, all right, how much time do I need to devote to this? This introduction is not like that, actually. This introduction is really setting up a, a almost like a manifesto for what he's trying to accomplish. And one of the things that I thought was really uh, an interesting statement is he says, uh, surveys reveal that pastors regulate r- uh, physical exercise, nutrition, and sleep 
to a much lower priority than the average worker. And so, so just right off the gate, I wanna I wanna address this, and we're we're coming up on time here in a little bit. But this book is written to a particular demographic for a particular purpose, and that demographic is Christian men with a particular eye towards men in ministry, and. You know, I didn't actually know that when I picked this book or when we picked this book. I wasn't aware of that. But on one level, it doesn't matter because for two reasons. Our our audience is predominantly men. We do have women listeners, and that's I, I appreciate all of our women listeners. But it's predominantly men. So this book is written to pe- to the, the main demographic of our, our group. And whether people are in formal ministry or not, I think you're right that most of the people in our listenership fall in that the Pareto rule, right? The Pareto rule is this theory and kind of efficiency of productivity that says roughly 20% of the, of the um, roughly 80% of the effort is put for by 20% of the people contributing to the outcome. Or another way that doesn't make it as personal is 20% of the causes contribute to 80% of the effects, right? And so, so most of our audience, I think just based on the people I've talked to, the people that I know who listen to our show, are fall into that 20%. And so all of us are trying to contribute to the gospel, to, to the, the forwarding of the gospel. We're trying to contribute to the life of the church. Uh, and that, that same motivation to do the best we can, to have the highest impact we can, that extends beyond our life in the church. In a lot of ways, like I think probably the people who listen to our show who fall in that 20%, they're like that in the rest of their life too. It's very rare that you have someone who's super engaged and active in the church and wants to be a leader in the church and wants to be participating and having an active effect. And then it's just super passive in the rest of their life. That just doesn't, there are some people like that, but it's super rare. And so I think for this book, even if you're not a pastor, even if you're, you're not a man, if you're one of our women listeners, there are, there are really practical, straightforward things that, that are going to come out of this book that all of us can apply. And one of the things that I think is important, you know, we did a whole episode on on complementarianism and, and uh, we were kind of responding to a particular thing at a particular time. But the reality is men and women are different, right? There are physical, biological differences in terms of hormonal differences, in terms of the physical makeup of our bodies, in terms of the structure. And, and those differences have real impacts in the way that we handle stress. Um, they have real impact in the kinds of stress that we are confronted with a lot of times. So so the the kind of demographic of this book is important, but the same kinds of strategies and things that he talks about, it's not as though they're going to be totally unuseful or unprofitable to uh, the women who listen to the podcast or the men who aren't in ministry, the people who are maybe, and I don't say this in a pejorative sense, but are maybe a little bit more passive in terms of their involvement in the church or their involvement in uh, their their jobs or in other things are a little bit less uh, are, are more, in more of that 80% than in the 20%. So I, I'm excited to go through this, but I think that our audience particularly is going to be benefited by this advice that he's giving to, I, I hate this term, but to, to sort of ministry leaders, people who are involved in the ministry, not necessarily in official capacity, and by that I mean like ordained office capacity, people who are in some sort of ministry position where either organically or officially they're in leadership, those are the people who are going to be benefited most by this. And I'm excited because I think most of our audience falls into that category. So I think this is going to be a real practical, real um, real beneficial study for, for I know it will be for me and I, I know it will me be too. for you, but I, I think it's going to be real beneficial for all of us. So if you haven't picked up the book, please pick it up. Please read it. It's not super expensive. It took me about 15 minutes to read the introduction. My time app that tells me how long I need to dedicate for other chapters of the book is, is probably going to take me 15 or 20 minutes per chapter. So it's not a huge time commitment which is good because ironically, if this was a huge time commitment, it would be kind of <laughs> contradictory to the purpose of the book. But um, I'm excited to work through this. And, you know, I don't think we I don't think we need to go through a lot more of the introduction. He talks about these different kind of errors. You know, he, he is you can tell he's he's writing as a pastor. Um, he, he has like these five bullet points or however many bullet points it is of like the things that grace does and doesn't do. So I, I don't want to go into all of those details on this introductory chapter, but the, the main point is that all of us deal with stress. All of us 
have the possibility, if not the actuality of burnout in our lives. I know there have been times where I have been overcommitted. It's funny because just yesterday and actually even just this morning, I was thinking about another podcast I wanted to start. Like one of the things that I am constantly doing is I'm constantly thinking of new, po- new podcast concepts. Um, <laughs> somebody feel free to steal this. Cause I'm probably never going to make it. I had this idea for a, a, a debate podcast called uh, agreeable disagreements or something like that, right? Where two people who are Christians get together and debate a topic that they disagree on, but they do it in a fashion that models how to do that for the rest of the church. Right. But one of the things that I've had to learn is I can't do every podcast that I think of. I can't do every podcast that I have a concept of because I just don't have time. And and I'm excited because I think this book is going to help us all to sort of pull back a little bit and look at our lives and say, all right, how do we have maximum impact without burning ourselves out? How do we actually finish the race? Um, you know, you could take you could take 10 runners and if the nine fastest runners gas themselves out and have to leave the race, then the 10th runner who's the slowest is still going to win. And that's kind of the point that I think he's trying to make is that not necessarily like you just have to outlast everybody else. But the point is you can't gas yourself out because finishing the race is the goal for most runners. It's not necessarily, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's not even usually about being the fastest or the first. Everybody wants to finish the race first, but what most people, especially who are doing distance running that I've ever talked to, they want to finish the race They want to see improvement in their own times. They want to see that their effort has come to fruition, even though it might mean that several runners finish in front of them or or something like that. A lot of times when I've talked to runners or I've talked to people who are training for some event like this, it's not about being the fastest or the best. It's about the personal dedication and the training and finishing the race well. And that I think is key. And I think that's a good takeaway we're going to get from this book. Right. I totally agree with you on that. I am that 10th slow runner that just wants to finish and hopefully we'll pass the other guys that have worn themselves out. And I think, and there's a lot of wonderful truth in that as it applies to this. I would say as we leave this introduction, the challenge I would give that's been really instructive to me in this opening chapter is I would encourage everyone as they read this, even as they're thinking about the conversation you and I have just had, to consider what their definition of grace is, because we throw that word around a lot and we've just used it several times here. And he's going to continue to return to this idea of this grace pacing, so to speak. Yeah. And I think the problem for some Christians is that we, of course, tend to merge together, amalgamate the definition or qualities of mercy and grace. And so we see grace as one in ephemeral concept that lacks a real substance in our lives. And two, that we associate it mainly with just God's approval or his putting up with us or that we've now been redeemed. And so therefore he is gracious toward us. However, we don't use it that way. It's not the way really the Bible uses it. So when somebody says, wow, that tennis player is really graceful. And what we mean is there is a beauty and a strength to their outer movements. And in fact, they might be so graceful because they've worked really hard, put forth a lot of effort to practice that skill so that they are effective at it. When we say that somebody is gracious, what we're really saying is there's a beauty to their inner movement, right? But that inner movement also must be attendant with strength that comes from some other source. So in other words, grace, especially the way Paul speaks about it, is the divine enabling of God. It's the divine energy and will and authority and empowerment that is spiritual, but also physical. So grace is a real quantity and quality of life. And so I think we need to see it more like that, and that'll help us understand what he's getting at here. Yeah. That's not just some kind of armchair theological concept that we say, well, isn't it great to, you know, almost like guardian angels and other like, you know, weird things that we know are Christian. They, they have a Christianese aspect to them. Here he's talking about a real quantity, and he's going to ask us and challenge us to say, is that how you're understanding us? Like when you ask for grace... What exactly are you asking for? Because the way that the Apostle Paul encourages us to ask for that is to receive the divine enabling of God, which is manifest both in a spiritual quantity by way of redemption through Christ, but also the right amount of physical effort and energy to accomplish that which God has given you to reasonably do. Yeah. So I think we need to kind of just question what we mean and how we're using this word grace. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, I, I'm 
I'm excited to keep working through this book. If if you as a listener have not picked up this book, uh, please do. Um, we are very excited. We are going to be doing a giveaway at the end of this. Uh, Crossway, who published this book, has been gracious enough to provide a copy uh, for us to give away. Was it a uh, so what I want people to do is pick up this book. I know I know it seems strange. This is weird. I just said we're going to give away a copy, and now I'm telling people to buy it. Buy the book, read the book, and then when you win the giveaway, give that book to somebody who you know needs it. I was going to say the same thing. One of the things that I think we can do as Christians is we can learn uh, things that God has to tell us, but then we we internalize that, we appropriate it, but then we don't share it. And and this is not the gospel, right? This this very much falls under the category of law. This is a thing that we are called to do that does not earn our salvation and we're going to fail at it. But one of the things that as Christians we should do is we should recognize that the law is there to transform us, to change us, and to shape us and make us look more like Jesus. And so one of the things I want us to do as we go through this is to step back a little bit, learn how to manage our own time, learn how to manage our own stress, learn how to do this thing better so we're not burning ourselves out. But when we get done with this and you win the book, I want you to give it to somebody who needs it. Um, I, you know, it'd be great if you give it to like a non-Christian who's struggling with burnout because the gospel is throughout this whole book, right? His whole point in this chapter, in this introduction, is that our works need to be driven by grace, right? Grace comes first. So, so check it out, pick up the book, read it with us. Um, I don't know anybody who's not stressed out right now. Like, I don't know anybody who's like, yeah, things are great. Everything's perfect. There's no stress in my life. Uh, I'm managing all of my responsibilities and competing things perfectly. My book list is caught up. Everything's fine. I don't know anybody like that. So I don't think there's anybody that isn't going to benefit from this book and isn't going to benefit from reading it. So pick it up, check it out, read along with us. Um, and and yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited too. And the one thing I'll say that makes this very special to me is if in case somebody hasn't picked this up yet and it sounds a little bit too much like every other book where here's five steps to change your, you know, reduce your stress and love God more. It's not like that at all. This is rooted in the gospel, though it's not like an explicit presentation of the gospel. Every principle is based upon and built from uh, God himself and his relationship with us, which, because he's still saying, just read the, just read the introduction. He's still saying like, you need to work. And so what grace actually does is it sets you right in that, like you want to, we talked about this in the pocket, in the sweet spot, right on the beat where everything you're being fulfilled and rejuvenated in your work, even though it's often hard, but you always walk away fulfilled, not in a selfish way, but in a way where you know that you have loved God and that you have served him wholeheartedly in a way that actually brings you energy as opposed to taking all your energy away. So this is impounded and throughout this is the gospel. So it's just such a lovely way to, I think, bring unification into the scriptures, not feel guilty for saying, Lord, I feel like I'm going to get burned out. And that's not like a taboo thing to say. And yet at the same time to know that there's no easy fix. It's not like, here's a 14 step plan. This isn't like your best life now. It's not like, you know, search deeper into your heart. Make sure you do this Bible reading plan and then everything will be fine. Make sure you do these types of family devotionals. It's none of that stuff. It's actually better than that. It's equipping us to first, I think, change our thinking so as to be further transformed into the likeness of Christ and to serve our father then more effectively and with joy. So I want to run that race with joy. And I can't tell you like for my own life, there's nothing better than going on a run. And it doesn't matter what distance it is and you finish it and you're tired, but you think, man, that was strong. Yeah. Like I just felt I'm, I'm tired, but that was good. And I felt like I was able to conquer that. And that's what I want for myself in the Christian life. Not because I'm better equipped intellectually or I know the right things to say, but because I am following more closely in lockstep with the Lord Jesus Christ, doing the things he will have me to do, receiving the energy and the grace from him, doing those effectively in the right way. So that, that way I can run the course with joy. Yeah. Yeah. That that's as good of a place to end as any. So Pick up the book. It's available anywhere you want to buy books. Um, we are going through the Kindle version of it. So when we reference page numbers or location numbers, that is what we'll be referencing. I don't know, but it's possible that the page numbers may be slightly different in a print edition. So if you want to follow along closely with us, pick up the Kindle edition, um, but we'll reference chapter numbers and stuff too. So pick up the book, read along with us. I'm super, super excited for a bookcast. It's been been a while since we've done a bookcast, and I think this is a good good way to go into 2021 is to look through this book together. 
I mean, we're just not giant nerds. We like talking about theology and we it's like true. reading. So true. this is like peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah, I'll, it's funny because a good friend of mine who's also a listener of the show heard me talking about the reading plan calculator that I was trying to make. And he he one-upped me by making an even better reading plan calculator. So if you if you're thinking that you're a bigger nerd than me... I literally spend time trying to figure out how to use spreadsheets to figure out how I'm going to read more books. So you're not, you're not a bigger nerd than me. But you know what? This just shows the depth of our nerdery because that started, the root of that nerdery was the reading and wanting to plan out your reading and understand right. the length of time. But then it translated or it kind of transmuted into mathematical nerdery because of the rounding issue. Oh yeah. And then also earlier we talked about the Kelly criterion and you spoke about power laws. So I mean, I can't be any happier than when our episodes yeah. get into math. It's, it's true. It's so good. Where's, it's true. Okay, there's another idea. Somebody else take that. Reformed math cast. Like somebody that just takes look at amazing mathematical techniques, problems, and solutions and shows how they cause us to fall in worship with God. Somebody take that. I'll, I would I would be on that podcast. I just don't have the time to make that podcast. I feel like that's every book that Vern Porthress has ever written. <laughs> Probably pretty I much mean, already done. Uh, it's close, but like it, his stuff isn't always accessible. That's true. It's true. So anyway, as until... someone who slept through most of pre-calc and had to teach myself how to do certain formulas just so I wouldn't fail high school, I can resonate with with uh, not understanding math. I just think math is brilliant. <laughs> Everybody will love it. It's just one of those things is polarizing because you probably have had a, a teacher at some point that didn't do it particularly well and it can turn you off. And but that's a whole nother yeah. podcast, a it's whole true. nother episode that we will never do. So it's true. until next time, Tony, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.